The text for our sermon this morning is Job 19, and we'll read verses 21 through 29. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of the Lord has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute Him, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid. Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. Well, our sermon this morning is about the resurrection. Can you say that? Resurrection? Yeah, do you know what it means? What does resurrection mean? Resurrection means coming back to life. It means being dead and then returning to life again. Now, the resurrection is an important thing for us Christians because we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead after three days. But the Bible also teaches that one day all God's children will be raised from the dead to live with Him forever. The verses that we read this morning teach us about the resurrection, and these verses teach us three important things. First, our bodies will be made like new again. Job tells us that he knows that his body will decay after he dies. Do you know what decay means? Do you? Are you sure? I'm sure you've seen a dead body, an animal, right? A dead animal laying somewhere in a field on the road. And as time passes, its body rots away until there's nothing left but bones. That's what decay means. It means that the dead body will rot away and turn back into the dirt that God made it from. Job also, so Job says, I will die. And he says, like bugs and worms will eat my body. But even after that, my Redeemer will make my body live again, just like He lives. And I will stand before Him when He returns and stands on the earth. So the resurrection means that God will make our bodies complete and whole again. If we were always weak and always sick when we were alive, we won't be that way anymore. All the problems that we have with our bodies, like needing glasses, having poor hearing, getting tired or sick, these are all effects of sin. And our newly made bodies will not have any of those problems. Isn't that good news? If you're your parents and grandparents think so. The second thing that we learn in these verses is that God will keep our souls with Him until He raises our bodies again from the dead. When God's children die, He takes the sin out of their souls so that they can live with Him in heaven. But what's really great about this is that by taking the sin out of our souls, when we rise again from the dead... We will never have any of the problems that we have now. We won't get sick or tired. We won't grow old and die because we'll no longer have sinful souls. And the third thing that we learn is that that life, that life of never getting old and tired and sick, it'll last forever and ever. When God created Adam, he told him not to eat of that one special tree in the garden. 
And God told him, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Death is a result of sin. Sickness and pain and weakness, those are all reminders that we will die. But after God takes the sin out of our souls and then joins them back to our renewed bodies, we will live forever. We'll never get sick or tired. But more important than that, we won't sin anymore. And I hope you can understand just how wonderful that will be. You will never have a fight with your brother or sister. You'll never get into trouble anymore. Not because you didn't get caught, but because you will never ever do anything wrong again. You and your family will, will love each other and be happy with each other and with Jesus forever and ever. And that happy life will never end because sin will be gone forever. And that's why the resurrection is such an important thing. The Bible teaches us about it, and God's Spirit, who lives in the hearts of all God's children, is a promise that it will happen. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in all of God's children and will raise them from the dead too. The message of the Bible is called the gospel. Gospel means good news. This is part of that good news. God's children will die, but they will live again, and they will live forever, and they will never, 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 ever sin again. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O oh, dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Our subject this morning is the general resurrection. We're not talking about the resurrection of Christ. Instead, we're talking about the resurrection of everyone. Some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. Our outline is as follows. Number one, the body raised. Number two, the soul preserved. And number three, eternal perfection. First of all, the body raised. One of the most, one of the most interesting things about believers is how they have always treated their dead. This treatment reflects what they believe about life and the afterlife. Now, beliefs about the afterlife cannot be deduced from nature or from observation, because no living person can peer through that veil. And for that reason, if there is any accurate knowledge about the afterlife, it must have come by revelation from God. And believers have always treated their dead in accordance with this revelation. Now, in many ancient cultures, burial as we conceive of it wasn't normal practice. Often the, bury, the bodies of the dead were simply burned. Among some of our pre-Christian European ancestors, the dead were placed in boats that were pushed out onto the water and then set ablaze. The bodies of the dead were disposed of in other equally distasteful ways. There were societies in which when you reached a certain age, you voluntarily hurled yourself off a cliff. The bodies were left where they fell, leaving a giant pile of broken bones. In the pagan cultures that did practice burial, such as the ancient Egyptians, the focus of their traditions was preparing the departed for what awaited him in the afterlife, whatever that was conceived to be. That's why Egyptian mummies were buried with stores of food and clothes and gold. 
That's why their pets were often mummified and buried with them. Because it would be awful lonely in the afterlife without Fido and Whiskers. Either the departed were, was conceived to just be moving to another realm, or perhaps merely passing out of existence. And both of those views, weak as they are, those are the best ideas that men can come up with, unaided by divine revelation. So now we have to ask the question, where did believers get their beliefs about the afterlife? What are those beliefs, and how did these beliefs shape their practice regarding the burial of their dead? Well, we've already answered that in part. The beliefs of God's people about the afterlife came by revelation from God. And so it's important to realize, remember, that the things which we will find later in Scripture, say, in the time of Abraham, those were known, those things were known to Job. Job knows that the great God will come down and that his death will bring the despairing rest. He knows that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Job knows that his Redeemer will die and rise from the dead, for he says in our text, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we pointed this out before, that that doesn't really say anything meaningful unless it's said against the backdrop of death. The biblical practice of burial is related to the teaching of the Bible about death and the afterlife. Pagan cultures believed that their dead would become gods or guiding spirits to the families or that they would merely pass out of existence. So if they practiced burial at all, the focus was on flattering the departed so that they wouldn't haunt or harm you and preparing them for whatever form of life they'd have in the realm of the dead. But in the Bible, we see something very different. First, we see that great care was always taken for the bodies of the dead. If the body has no more purpose on earth, who cares what you do with it, right? But what we see is that the dead were treated with respect and were given a proper funeral and a decent burial. Now, burial in Bible times wasn't in a six-foot hole. Usually, burial was laying the body in a cave, and the caves were tooled inside to make shelves or, or sleeves in which the deceased was placed. Lying down, our idea of underground burial is more of a modern convention, but the belief behind both practices is the same. In the biblical worldview, death isn't the end. Death is always treated in Scripture as a temporary state. And we see this in a number of ways. And since we're studying through the book of Job, let's look at some of the things that Job says. In Job 3, verses 20 through 22, he says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? In chapter 17, 13 through 15, Job says, If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, You are my father, and to the worm, You are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? See, Job doesn't view death in the grave as the end. He sees in death a welcome reprieve from suffering. But that's not something you'd say if death was merely ceasing to exist. Because no matter how, life, how hard one's life may be, existence is better than non-existence. Like you'd never say, well, if I die, I'll simply stop existing, and that's a good thing because it means my suffering is over. No, it doesn't. It means you're over. 
To say that your suffering will end necessarily implies that you will continue to exist so that you can enjoy the experience of not suffering. Job says, if all I have to look forward to is the grave, where then is my hope? If death merely means ceasing to exist, there can be no such thing as hope in life. Now, whether or not you believe in heaven, belief in heaven has shaped our culture and our very language. I mean, how do we describe the state of our elderly loved ones when they die? We usually always say things like, she's in a better place now, or his, his suffering has ended. You can say those things and not believe in heaven or in an afterlife, but you're being dishonest. You're actually being a thief because you're stealing Christian categories and then applying them in anti-Christian ways. She's in a better place is meaningless drivel if you don't mean that she is actually with the Lord Jesus in heaven. His suffering has ended is fairy tale fiction unless you mean what scripture means by such language. Now, the Bible never minimizes the reality of death or the pain and loss felt by the bereaved. However, the Bible consistently speaks of the death of believers as analogous to sleep. We saw it in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Over and over throughout the scriptures, when a believer dies, we read, he fell asleep and was gathered unto his people. He slept and was laid with his fathers. And you won't find a single place in Scripture where an unbeliever dies and his death is called sleep. Instead, the Bible uses words like destroyed or perished. Now, what is the posture of sleep? A pile of ashes hurtling off a cliff? No, it's lying down. And the very idea of sleep presupposes what? Waking up, of course. It would be intentional deception on God's part to call the believer's death sleep if Waking up wasn't an eventual reality. And that brings us to the biblical purpose of burial. All that we've just said explains why believers have always buried their dead lying down. Our dead are laid in the grave because that posture signifies our belief in the resurrection. That's why historically Christians have never cremated their dead. Our dead are laid in the grave because their bodies as well as their souls are united to Christ. Their souls go immediately to heaven, but their bodies rest in the grave until the final day. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, I'm sure many have, but cemeteries historically have always faced east. And do you know why? Zechariah 14.4 and Matthew 24, 27 tell us that Christ will return from the east. And so Christians oriented their cemeteries in that direction so that the dead are facing east when Christ returns. Well, we're going to look at the case of Abraham. And of course, we need to remember that Abraham was a contemporary of Job for many decades. In fact, Noah was still living for the first hundred years of Abraham's life. I think we don't all always realize that. Noah died the year that Isaac was born. So it's no stretch to say that Abraham's beliefs about death and burial were the very ones passed on to him through the faithful patriarchs, through Noah and through Job. You remember, of course, that Abraham left his homeland and moved to Canaan at the command of God. He lived in Canaan as a, like a nomad, moving from place to place. 
And I suppose his moves were occasioned by his livestock. He had very large herds of cattle, sheep, and goats, and obviously that would require a lot of grazing land. So when the pastures got too thin, he'd move somewhere with lusher grass. And when that had been eaten up, he'd move again. And it was just a circuit that kept him in the same areas over and over. Abraham didn't own a square inch of this land, but he did know that it would one day be his. God had promised it to him and his descendants. I mean, you remember one time when pasture was insignificant for, uh, insufficient rather, for his and Lot's herds. Abraham acts like the king of the land and just tells Lot, hey, where do you want to live? You can have it. He doesn't say, let's consult with the Canaanites and find out where they'll let you live, right? Now, while Abraham was living in Hebron, his wife, Sarah, died. So he bought a cave called Machpelah from a man named Ephron, and that's where he buried her. And that was an act of faith. It expressed his belief in the resurrection. Abraham didn't burn Sarah's body as if to say, well, she's got no more to do with this world. Not only was Abraham careful to provide a grave for Sarah, but he also gave instructions to Isaac that he must be buried there too. Isaac and Rebekah were buried in Machpelah. Joseph, uh, Jacob rather, buried Leah there. And then he also gave instructions and his body was carried out of Egypt to be buried in that same cave. Before Joseph died, he made the Israelites swear to carry his bones out of Egypt and bury him in Machpelah too. This was not superstition. It was based on belief in the resurrection. They believed that they would one day live again, and that grave was a mere resting place for their bodies until the resurrection. Hence, the grave bore witness of their faith to their descendants. They believed that they would rise again and live forever with their believing loved ones. Being buried together bore witness to this belief. And in Abraham's case, this faith is most clearly seen when he was called to sacrifice Isaac. You see, God said, Abraham, I will give this land to you and your descendants. And then Abraham has to wait till he's 100 before he has a son. This one son represents offspring as numerous as the stars. God tells Abraham that it'll be a long time before his descendants possess this land. God tells him that his descendants will go into Egypt and be enslaved there for 400 years before they come back and inherit this land. But the promise was not, Abraham, I'm giving this land to your descendants. It was, I'm giving this land to you and your descendants. So he knew that he would die, and many centuries later, his descendants would take the land, but that wouldn't be a proper fulfillment of the promise. The promise wouldn't be properly fulfilled unless he himself possessed the land, and the only way for that to happen would be for him to rise from the dead. And he believes this. That's why he staked out a spot in the heart of the land for his body to rest until the resurrection. Now, the command to offer Isaac tested his faith at that exact point. Could Abraham endure, not just to have his own inheritance postponed till after the resurrection, but the inheritance of his seed also? Could he bear to have not just his own expectation deferred to the future state, but also Isaac's? Well, yes, he could because he believed in the resurrection. 
Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now, it's not that Abraham thought, I'll offer up Isaac and God will zap him back to life after a few seconds, because that's not a test of faith, nor is it a demonstration of faith. Abraham was offering Isaac knowing that he wouldn't receive the promise until after the resurrection. And God confirmed this resurrection faith by giving Isaac back alive, alive from the dead, as it were. By his faith in the resurrection, Abraham could forego carving out an existence in a new land for his children and his grandchildren. He could forego becoming a father of a great multitude in this present world. He was willing to consent to the idea that when he died, all trace of his existence would vanish, and the only hint left behind that he had ever lived would be the family of the wicked Ishmael. He was willing to outlive the son of whom he was told, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He was willing to sacrifice not just his own future, but Isaac's too. Abraham faced the prospect of being the subject of ridicule for millennia because he never got possession of the land on the faith of which he went out not knowing whither he went. But by resurrection faith, Abraham looked to the things that are unseen and eternal being assured that if our earthly house, this tent, be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Abraham's actions were animated by faith in the resurrection, and it's clear that Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were animated by that very same faith. Burial in the cave of Machpelah was a declaration of their belief in the resurrection that they would once more dwell on earth as the people of God and inherit His promises. Now I want to move to our second point, the soul preserved. Now, what does resurrection entail? Well, first of all, the body must rise from its grave. It must be restored to wholeness in spite of any level of decay. Job speaks of his flesh being eaten by worms and yet fully restored. But a body remains a corpse unless it's reunited with its soul. So not only does belief in resurrection address the body, it also addresses the soul. Our first question this morning literally said that. Scripture describes death as the separation of body and soul. We've read this passage before, but in Genesis 35, Rachel dies in childhood, uh, childbirth. And scripture, <coughs> excuse me, scripture describes it in these words. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Death is the severing of the union of body and soul. So if resurrection relates to one of these two elements, it relates to them both. A disembodied soul is not fully you, And a soulless corpse is not fully you. Our primary question then becomes, how does death relate to the believer's soul? Well, we just saw that the believer's death is likened to sleep. And that state of sleep refers only to the body because death severs the union of body and soul. 
The soul is never, was never thought, never taught in the Bible to be dormant inside the body. Ecclesiastes 12.7, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The souls of the departed believers live with the Lord in heaven until the day of the resurrection when their bodies will be restored to wholeness and their souls will be reunited with these restored bodies. Hebrews 11 tells us of the resurrection faith of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And of course, Job belongs in that list of saints too. And Paul says, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, we're assured assured of them. Okay, pop quiz. If death ends your existence on earth, how can you be assured of a promise that you didn't receive before you died? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, we're assured of them. Resurrection is the only answer to that question. And we're not reading this into Scripture. We're literally told this in many, many places. Jesus argued the resurrection this way. Hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, Moses was in the wilderness at the burning bush. And at the bush, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus explains this to mean that the souls of those patriarchs are still alive because God isn't the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And if God is still the God of Abraham centuries after he died, then that can only mean that Abraham will live again. And let me make this as as clear as I can. Jesus is who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Throughout the Old Testament, Jesus appears before his incarnation as the angel of the Lord. In Exodus 3, we read, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And then we read, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It was Jesus who spoke to Moses. So who better to explain these words than the one who actually uttered them? We have it on the authority of Jesus himself that death doesn't affect the soul of the believer other than to temporarily separate it from its body. Paul says this very thing in 2 Corinthians 5. He writes, if our earthly house, this tent, is dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. The resurrection reunites the body and the soul so that the soul isn't disembodied forever and the body isn't just brought back to life. It is glorified and perfected. The soul isn't merely clothed with the body again. It is further clothed because the body is glorified to be like Jesus' glorified body. That brings us to our third point, eternal perfection. Now, Scripture describes resurrection life as eternal blessedness. And that blessedness consists in the perfecting of our nature, we will be more than just restored 
to Adam's pre-fall state of sinlessness. We will be perfected in righteousness so that we will no longer be able to sin. What a glorious prospect that is. If that doesn't get your heart pumping, you should check your pulse. You might already be dead. The doctrine of the resurrection, it is an article of faith that can only be gotten by revelation. We started at this point, didn't we? If God hadn't revealed it, we would not know it. But there are only two religions in the world. That which puts the Bible above everything, and that which puts something above the Bible. The former is the religion of Scripture, the very faith of Jesus. The latter is the religion of all rationalists. You see, the Christian says, the whole written word is inspired by God even to a jot and tittle. Scripture cannot be broken. The rationalist says there are human judges qualified and entitled to pass judgment on the word of God. Instead of putting the Bible over everything, they place something else, whether science, reason, tradition, or some new inspiration, above God's book. And that is the source of all rationalisms and all false religions. The rationalists who profess Judaism place their Targums, Mishnah, Gemara, and Talmud over the Bible. And under the weight of these perverse fictions, they've smothered the law and the prophets. The rationalists who profess Romanism subject the Bible to the written and unwritten traditions of the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. They make an ordinary Argentinian the final arbiter of what God is allowed to say. The rationalists who, pro who profess Protestantism place above the Bible the reasonings of Arminius or Hegel or even their own. They'll say that there's a mixture in the Bible of the human and divine elements and that they're the only ones qualified to distinguish these elements. They'll sift the Bible and tell you that there's no divinity in Christ, no resurrection of the body, no Holy Ghost, no devil, no demons, no heaven, no hell, no expiation in the death of Jesus, no native corruption in man, no eternal punishment, no miracles, and that Jesus quite possibly never even existed. The rationalists who profess mysticism subject the Bible to their own hallucinations, their own inward impressions, their messages in tongues, their tingles and goosebumps. They'll speak of the letter of Scripture with disdain while elevating their own personal revelations. That's why they dislike the doctrines of God's judicial righteousness, of wrath against sin, of election, of grace, of satisfaction, or of Christ's imputed righteousness. Now, that long diversion was really just to say this. The resurrection is not a doctrine that can be deduced from observations of the natural world. The doctrine of the resurrection comes directly from God. It is either revelation from God or it is fiction. The man who believes has that faith, his faith, from God. He who doesn't believe in the resurrection makes God a liar and is under God's wrath as an unbeliever. The death of the believer is the end of all of his sufferings, infirmities, and sicknesses. But most importantly, it's the end of all of his battles with sin. Herein consists the eternal blessedness of the saints, eternal perfection, never again to sin, never again to be tempted. 
forever out of temptation's reach. The believer's death dissolves everything that binds him to corruption. It strips sin from his human nature and ushers him in to eternal life forever free from the ravages of the fall. But the resurrection cements this blessedness because it reunites the body and the soul, both liberated from the effects of the fall and eternally free from sin and temptation to sin. Can you imagine unending happy fellowship with your wife and having that fellowship never broken by an argument? Can you imagine unending happy fellowship with your children and and not having that fellowship disappointed by occasional lapses in your children's Christian character? Can you imagine having that fellowship never disrupted by misunderstandings that grow into decades-long feuds or grudges? Can you imagine never, 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 ever being tempted to do something displeasing to God? What a glory that will be. And while on earth, the believer cries out in the words of Romans 7, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All the world's sufferings, war, famine, drought, flood, and all personal sufferings, sickness, frailty, discord, estrangement, pain, all suffering entered the world as a result of sin. But death relieves the suffering believer. It's the gateway to glorification. But the resurrection gives a permanent bodily form to these spiritual blessings. And this should give us unspeakable joy right here and now. I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, says our catechism. If you can't rejoice in the resurrection, it's because you don't believe in it. There's no other way to put it. Believers take comfort from the article of life everlasting. Let us pray.